south of the border, down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love when the stars above came out to play. And now as I wander. Hello there, all you expat wannabes. I'm Johnny Mueller, and you're listening to The Expat Files, Living in Latin America, the show that tells you just what it's like to live, work, play, and or retire down here in Latin America. It's a mix of the good, the bad, the ugly, and the great, and it's all right here, so let's get started. Now, here's something you probably have never heard before. You know, I was talking to a 30-something Latina the other day. She's in a relationship with a 50-something gringo. We got to talking about mating and dating. You know, when you're sitting in one of those outdoor cafes and people are strolling by, you know, in a pedestrian area, one of the things you do is sometimes make a comment about a couple or a person that walks by. That's what people do, you know. At least us gringos and expats when we're sitting around. You know, you see a guy and you say, well, he looks pretty grumpy. Or that couple, look at that body language. They look like they're fighting. Or check out that couple there. You can tell she's in it for the money. And who knows if you're wrong or right. It's a fun game to play when you're just sitting around checking people out. Anyway, she said, you know, Johnny, lots of people assume us Latinos like older gringo guys just for their money or their economic status, whatever. She said, it's always part of it. You can't ignore it. She said, as for me and for my girlfriends who are educated, college educated, you know why we prefer older guys, guys in their 40s, 50s, 60s? Because they don't lie on the dating apps and they don't post doctored, filtered photos. She said, you know, when you meet them, they're going to be pretty much exactly like how they posted themselves on the dating app. Well, the guys my age, she said, just lie their asses off. She was serious. And I thought, you know, I think she's absolutely right. Of course, the ladies her age or younger would never post a bad photo either. And they've been known to lie and exaggerate to kingdom come on those dating apps, too. Though she makes a good point. What she says about older, more mature guys is absolutely right. Most of us have never even used a filter before. I haven't. Guys in their 20s and 30s grew up with dating apps. They didn't meet girls in person, you know, at the bank, football games out and about. Their number one choice for hooking up is dating apps. Whereas guys over 40, we all grew up and lived in a time where you had to meet the person to ask him out on a date. So the other person would see you up front and personal, warts and all. And to tell you the truth, all the older guys I know, guys who are 50, 60 or more. The ones who are single, a lot of them are on those dating app sites because there's no other choice. They're not making up shit and posting coy and filtered photos. They don't even know how. (laughs) So she's absolutely right. With older, more mature guys on those dating apps, what you see in the photos and what they write on their personal profile is what you get when you actually meet them face to face. In the end, she hit on something worth considering. It's not that us older guys won't fib or post-doctored photos on dating sites. It's just that we're old school and not used to playing that game. So what's it all mean then? Well, think of it like this. If you're an older guy, even a decrepit older guy, and you've got mating and dating on your mind, and you realize you have to go to those dating apps to actually meet anyone, don't get all uptight thinking that when you meet face-to-face that your appearance or qualities or lack thereof will somehow shock her or turn her off. I say don't worry about it. She already knows what you're like. She's seen your real photo and you've given her a decent profile and haven't lied. Not much anyway. If she's agreed to meet you, you've already passed the biggest test. And if you're wondering why a beautiful 30-something Latina would fall for your clunky ass, remember one thing. Latinas are very forgiving. They've all been through the ringer, cheated on and screwed over by some local guy. 
And us gringos look like knights in shining armor by comparison. By the way, I've asked a lot of 20, 30, and 40-something Latinas if they've ever gone out with a gringo. And being 95% of the time I'm off the tourist trail, they always say, nope. Though a few will tell me, I know someone or have a cousin or a friend who had a gringo boyfriend and he treated her just fine. In fact, he sort of spoiled her. I hear that all the time. It's nice. We have that kind of reputation. That's off the gringo tourist trail. However, when you're on the gringo tourist trail and you ask a Latina that question, you'll get a lot of negative responses because gringos, especially spring break gringos on the party trail, can be real assholes. But I digress. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Talking about how older gringos don't manipulate their profiles and photos on those dating apps. On the other hand, those Latina ladies you meet on those apps, they're known for manipulating their photos and doctoring their stats. You can bet if she's under 35, there'll be a lot of that. By the way, a couple of shows ago, we were talking about staying in Airbnbs. I've stayed in a lot of them. Now, I don't know about you, but just lately, I've been hearing some very disturbing things about Airbnbs. As longtime listener and expat insider seminar alumni, Jeff writes in, he says, Johnny, what's your take on hidden cameras and Airbnbs? He says, I've been reading that the percentage of hidden cameras in Airbnbs is somewhere in the 70% range. What would be a good way to identify or discover hidden cameras in Airbnbs? Yeah, Jeff, well, if that's not a revolting development, huh? Though I have to say, I think that applies exclusively to Airbnbs in first world countries. You know, the US, Canada, Europe, Australia, Japan, Israel. Yeah, Israel's a first world country. I can assure you that down here in Latin America, there's no way 70% of Airbnbs have cameras. And even if an Airbnb happens to have a hidden camera, I'd say there's a 70% chance it doesn't work. But we're talking about hidden cameras here. You know, if you go on Amazon and plug in hidden camera, you'll find hundreds of stealthy cameras no one could possibly detect. Yep, being monitored by a hidden camera is a risk, but there are more risks than that staying at Airbnbs. Not that I've been disappointed with Airbnbs I've stayed at in the past. It's just that as time goes on, we're hearing more and more negative things about them. And the whole idea was to save money over traditional hotels, right? It seems to me most Airbnbs aren't nearly the great deal they once were when, well, the service first started. Although some of their prices might seem pretty good. You know, they're adding on extras all the time. Cleaning and made fees that were never there before. And now more and more cities and towns are slapping on additional taxes. In fact, the last Airbnb I stayed at was something like 70 bucks a night. I stayed there for five nights and there was a cleaning fee added, 127 bucks. And I'm no slob. I left it real nice. Plus an Airbnb service fee of 62 bucks. So that 70 bucks a night thing was totally misleading. I ended up having to pony up about 180 bucks extra. I should have stayed at a nice nearby $100 a night hotel where I'd get my room cleaned and the bedding changed every day. Breakfast included. And clean towels every day. Oh, yeah. And speaking of maid service, another thing I don't like is many Airbnbs won't change the bedding for days at a time. And with hotels, it's daily. Oh, and by the way, according to a recent Northwestern University study, the, the growth of Airbnbs in any neighborhood contributes to a much higher rate of crime in the area. I'm looking at the study right now, and it says the increase in crime is likely due to Airbnbs poking holes in the social fabric of the neighborhood. It says the number of Airbnbs in a residential area is positively linked to increase in crime. In other words, criminals are a lot bolder in areas with Airbnbs, knowing the people are transient. They're easier marks. Airbnb residents don't know the area, don't know the neighborhood, 
They're in the neighborhood for a short vacation. You rob them, they're gone, and there's little follow-up by the cops. What seems to be the problem is that Airbnbs are taking households off the social network and eroding a neighborhood's natural capacity to manage crime. Because normally, neighbors look out for each other, and they're much less likely to look out for people they don't know, people renting Airbnbs. In fact, permanent residents are not all that happy about having Airbnbs in their area. So then how did they get the data for the study? They compiled 911 call data from Airbnb listings versus long-term residents. In conclusion, the study says the penetration of Airbnb units in each neighborhood has a direct effect on the increase in crime. Hmm, that's not good news. Oh, and by the way, if you get robbed or assaulted in a hotel, man, they're on it right away. Because just one terrible review like that on TripAdvisor, Expedia, or Hotels.com, there goes the occupancy rates on future bookings. Whereas if you get robbed, mugged, or secretly filmed in an Airbnb, you have less recourse, a lot fewer options to resolve the matter. If you get robbed in a hotel, the management's on it. If you get robbed in an Airbnb, you got to go down to the police station and fill out the reports and fight it out with the cops. So think about that stuff for a while. The next time you have to choose between a hotel and an Airbnb. Just saying. All right, moving on. You know, one of the surprising things I've noticed after doing quite a few seminars is the number of seminar attendees that are ex-military. That surprised the hell out of me. Because, you know, the standard impression of a person like me who's never been in the military is that people who go into the military are really gung-ho, died in the wool, America, love it or leave it patriots. So when I first started realizing a lot of my seminar attendees are ex-military, I thought, these guys who went all in on America, all in for the military, you know, fight to the death for God and country, if necessary, I mean, that's what you're trained for, right? I'm thinking, why would these guys want to get the hell out of Dodge? How does that make sense? And why so many of them? Well, I learned rather quickly after talking to a few of these guys that the U.S. military they signed up for no longer exists, nor is it in any way the army their dads and granddads signed on to. And it seems to have taken a very wrong turn, at least according to them, right around the Clinton time with the no-ask-no-tell policy when it came to gays in the military and all that. Of course, nowadays, the U.S. military and the U.S. government in general has gone way woke with trans and non-binary drill sergeants, drag shows, the works. Not to mention all the bigwigs, you know, the admirals, generals, the chiefs of staff are all involved in that revolving door of military contractors, you know. They retire and suddenly get a slot on the board of directors of Raytheon or General Dynamics. It's also f corrupt. It didn't take me long to see why so many intelligent military guys and gals decided they had enough, they want to get the hell out of Dodge, they want to plan B. Which brings me to this related email from Lewis in Colorado. He said, Johnny, I did not serve in the military, though I could have. It was the Vietnam draft when I came of age. I was deferred because I went to university. However, had I not had this deferment, I would not have gone in any case. There was talk at the dinner table of me going off to Canada, though my dad, a World War II vet, would have kicked my ass. He says a lot of my friends went to Vietnam. There were a few gung-ho guys, but most really did not want to go. I felt sort of different about them when they came back. They seemed more worldly and mature than I was. I somehow felt my own lack of military experience was sort of a loss because my buddies had gained a kind of discipline and a certain seriousness they didn't have before they went. That's when I changed my mind about the military. I thought it can be very good for some people, especially young guys who lack discipline. 
But these days, he says, I've flipped again on the military. I would never recommend any of my sons or grandsons to sign up for the military. Unfortunately, like the rest of the country, it's a shame and an embarrassment what it's morphed into. Then Lewis says, I remember when I was a young man sitting with my grandma. She was in a wheelchair. She was about 70, and I remember her telling me she was glad her days are numbered. I never agreed at all. I thought, why is she saying that? And now he says that I'm at that age. I get what my grandma was feeling. He says, unfortunately, Johnny, it's a little too late for me to get the hell out of Dodge. I'm in a wheelchair now, and I don't think in my condition I could handle the change. Hmm, well, Lewis, all I can say is try to hang in there, man. Though, I have to agree, Latin America is a tough place to get around if you're in a wheelchair. The thing is, people in that situation up in the States always forget that if they come down to Latin America, they could solve that problem completely for three or 400 bucks a month. They can hire a 24-7 live-in maid or call her a caregiver, whatever. She'll do your shopping, cleaning, cooking, wipe your butt, and take you places. Now, if you're living up in the States and you're in a wheelchair, a caregiver like that would cost you 10 times as much or more. Unless you were Mr. or Mrs. Moneybags, you could never afford that. But down here in Latin America, that's absolutely possible. If I ever ended up in a wheelchair, that'd be my strategy. Anyway, Louis, speaking of the military and Vietnam War, I know guys who got out of the Vietnam draft by tricking the docs at the physical. Now, I was slightly too young to get drafted in Vietnam, but my musician buddies, who were almost always older than me, some got called up. I remember one guy flunked the physical by practicing breathing techniques to raise his blood pressure. I remember one musician buddy smacked his knee so hard against a cement post. He did it about a half hour before he walked in to get his physical. It swelled up. He was diagnosed with water on the knee. and He too was labeled 4F. Another guy I knew took a bunch of Valiums he could barely stand up for the physical. And another guy, I remember his name, Louis Valpentesta, looked just like Frank Zappa. He got out on a mental discharge because he said he was gay. Isn't it funny? Back then, they'd reject you with disdain if you were a transsexual, a cross-dresser, or gay. They called that progress, right? Which reminds me of a funny story. You know, the very first job I got as a musician playing bass in a band that got gigs and got paid. It was because a bass player in a pretty popular band around Chicago got drafted. And the band, who had lots of gigs lined up, put out the word at the Chicago Musicians Union. I went down there, saw the notice on the bulletin board. I was only 15, maybe just turning 16. I auditioned, got the job, even though the other guys were much older than I was, 19, 20, and 21. I was a punk kid, way below their social level, but I could play the bass. Anyway, the night before, the bass player was supposed to report to duty at, at nearby Great Lakes Naval Base. They threw a huge party for the guy at his parents' house, and they invited me. And at that party, his dad made a big show of cutting his hair off, all of it. You see, the guy had very long hair, and his dad told him, look, if you report with long hair, they're going to cut it all off. They're also going to treat you badly, because if you show up as a long hair, they're forever going to mark you as a hippie, and you will get picked on, and you don't want to get picked on in the Army. Anyway, two or three years later, when he was discharged, I was in a different band by now, and we needed a bass player. And guess who became our bass player? That guy. I played guitar and keyboard in that band. Anyway, one night we were sitting around, and I asked him about Vietnam. What happened there? Well, he had a few drinks, and he got really serious, and he said, he was in the jungle, front lines. It was terrible, he said. Then he told me a story that made my jaw drop. He said, they had such a bad sergeant in charge of the platoon. He caused so much grief, they hated him so much that they decided they were going to kill him. Their own sergeant, frag him with a grenade. 
they all drew straws. My buddy, luckily, he didn't get the short straw. But one guy did, and that night, that sergeant met his end by a friendly fire, fragged by a grenade. Then, get this, after my buddy laid that on me, he said, Johnny, someday I'll tell you a few war stories that'll really shock you. But he never did. Yep, he definitely got back from Nam as a different person. Oh, and get this, another friend of mine went to Nam. He was a paymaster. Every month he'd go through the jungle from American camp to American camp with a Jeep and a couple of escorts, and he'd have thousands and thousands of dollars in cash to pay the soldiers. He was a big, tough guy, too. They needed guys like that because he told me when he first got the job, one of his escorts said to him, I'm glad you're a big, tough-looking guy because the last paymaster we had was a nerdy guy, and he was jumped, robbed, and shot in the jungle. So, yes, Lewis, you're right. Lots of guys go into the service and they come out with a certain kind of discipline and seriousness and, in some cases, can really make a man out of a wimp. But truly, these days, it's a completely different man's army. In some cases, not even a man's army anymore. In fact, a Pentagon study came out in March of 2023 revealing that 77% of young Americans do not qualify for military service due to being overweight or obese, having excess drug abuse, or mental or physical problems. That's 77% of young Americans not being able to qualify for military service. And because of that, the Pentagon says they will collectively miss their recruiting requirement by 30 or 40,000, which means they'll have an unprecedented mission gap. And that's a huge reason for concern. What? Wait a minute. Are you telling me the military doesn't accept recruits with blue, pink, or green hair? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are they saying no nipple piercings, tongue studs, or nose rings allowed? You mean to say the military's not recruiting kids with fourth grade math skills and 20-word vocabularies? Obviously, the Defense Department's just not woke enough. But seriously, man, I just don't understand how a military lifer, you know, a guy that makes the military his career, how could he or she stand what's happened to the armed forces? And think about this for a second. When the woke U.S. military has to go up against an adversary, you have to know your enemy, right? You've got to study your enemy. Imagine what's going through the enemy's head when they realize what's happened to the U.S. Army. They got to be both laughing their asses off and thinking, man, those Americans are destroying themselves from within. Then again, isn't that what Lenin, Marx, Mao, and Stalin always said? Set the Americans against themselves. So discontent. And let them weaken and destroy themselves from within. All right, now a little expat insider seminar news. You know, I've got my seminar coming up. It's March 8th through March 15th. This show, today's show, first goes out on February 4th, 2024. And if you've been paying attention, you might remember that on February 1st, just three days ago, that's when my seminar early bird discounts expired. Well, the good news for you guys and gals out there is that I'm extending it to February 10th, a week from now. I'm doing so because I've received a number of emails from people who are having some delays in trying to get their ducks lined up for the dates. Things like days off from work, etc. So the good news is you still have a few more days till February 10th to get in on the early bird discounts. And of course, you repeat offenders out there, you know you get a $1,000 discount automatically. Anyway, just go to expatplanb.com and click on the seminar link for all the sign-up information and details. Now, speaking of El Salvador, it's been in and out of the news like crazy lately, right? Especially since Bukele is running for re-election. And that election's coming up shortly. We'll be stopping in El Salvador, as you know, at our Expat Insider Seminar. Anyway, I just got an email from an El Salvadorian, Juanito, who's been 
Living in the United States for the past 20 years, he escaped the crime and the gangs, ended up in Oklahoma, got legal, started a business, is doing fine, and now he says he's ready to move back to El Salvador. He said he loves America and the opportunities America gave him, but it's not the same place at all he landed 20 years ago. Anyway, he's got some comments about his home country, El Salvador, that should interest you. He says, Johnny, I'm sick of articles in the U.S. press dissing President Bukele. That's just wrong. A president from any country has the obligation to protect its good citizens. Apparently, the first world, or first world press anyway, doesn't see it that way. It's better for a president to tolerate gangs, crime, and corruption than to protect its own citizens. That's the way it seems, according to the U.S. press. He says, El Salvador has a long history of bad, corrupt judges, corrupt attorneys, corrupt politicians, corrupt newspapers, and corrupt companies. And President Bukele had to have a scorched-earth policy to burn them out. Juanito says, you cannot expect a new government to come in and burn out the old rot using the same corrupt people and applying the same system that's been in power in previous administrations and expect to get good and different results. He says, look at Donald Trump. Came in with some very good ideas, but kept on the old guard. He did not clean house. He did not drain the swamp as he promised. He left the foxes in charge of the hen house. You have to fire and weed out the judges, attorneys, politicians, newspapers, and companies, or the cancer comes back. Then he says, if you really pay attention to what's happening at the ground level in El Salvador, you'll see that most all of the people whining and crying about human rights abuses by Bukele in his effort to eradicate the gangs. You'll find the most vocal whiners are people who've got family in jail who are gangbangers. Among the biggest whiners are politicians who've lost their jobs or were getting kickbacks from the gangs. And as for those business bigwigs who are whining about Bukele, they're the ones with connections, the ones who paid off politicians who used to remain exempt from paying local or national taxes. Then he says about the two main newspapers who whine about Bukele. They used to get all their funding from previous governments. They never could survive on their own. So who do you think they were loyal to? And who do you think they hate the most? The guy that took away the subsidies, Bukele. While at the same time, the people of El Salvador have spoken. They love Bukele. He's got the highest presidential approval of any president in the world. Yet the U.S. and all the first world media keeps hammering on Bukele day after day, getting all their information and news feeds from the previous status quo. Juanito says, I've been back and forth to El Salvador many times since Bukele's been in office. Ask any regular citizen who they're going to vote for. The answer is always Bukele. And why? Because he promised to fight crime, corruption, etc. And actually followed through, more than followed through, more than any other president ever in history. And as for those 10% of people who won't vote for Bukele, who hate him, every last one of them either has family who was a gang member now in jail or connected somehow to the previous government through nepotism. The whiners and complainers are the bureaucrats and politicians who lost their jobs when Bukele came into office. We were in a war. It's a war that Bukele won, and all wars will have casualties. That's the cost to live in peace. Then Juanito says, my wife, who is also from El Salvador, thinks the U.S. media is sickening. She's all for moving back, too. She's sad. They say nothing but negative things about El Salvador. Meanwhile, the economy is booming. And friends we have down there 
who have their own businesses are no longer hiring security guards. They tell me before Bukele got into office, every month they paid 20% of their income to extortionists. So when Bukele came in, they got an instant 20% raise. Plus, they no longer have to pay for a security guard with a shotgun standing at the front door. Nobody messes with you anymore. It's now the safest country in the Western Hemisphere. And about all those rumors of people getting jailed who were innocent. We personally know some people who were locked up because of gang ties. But many who were not guilty of any known crime were released. Thousands of them. It is a fact, though. If you're caught with a gang tattoo, you will be locked up. What could be a clearer sign that you are a law-breaking pest than having an indelible gang tattoo? Is there something those first-world journalists aren't getting about that? Or is it maybe they're giving free stick-on gang tattoos at Disneyland these days? I don't know. But I'm fed up with the crybaby first-world journalists and NGO do-gooders who never lifted a finger before to help us, screaming human rights violations. Then he says, for those of you who are not in the know about El Salvador, because who thought about El Salvador before Bukele got into office? Who even cared? Well, here's a little recap of those past 30 years before Bukele. For those of you who like facts, two ex-presidents of the political party ARENA, A-R-E-N-A, Francisco Flores and Tony Saca, looted the country to the bone. Francisco Flores, president from 1999 to 2004, stole 15 million they know about. That money was donated by Taiwan for earthquake aid. They caught and convicted President Flores and he died in prison. Then there's President Tony Saka from 2004 to 2009. He embezzled $300 million of public funds. He was put in prison in 2021 along with his wife and got 10 years. Ordered to return $260 million of it, which he never did. Plus, his wife and her brother were imprisoned and ordered to repay $17.6 million. He, his wife, his brother-in-law, are sitting in prison right now. Then there's the two ex-presidents from the political party FMLN, Mauricio Funes and Salvador Sanchez Serin. Mauricio Funes, president from 2009 to 2014, was convicted of laundering $350 million. He fled the country and is now living in Nicaragua in asylum. He and his son were both found guilty of that crime. Then there's President Salvador Sanchez Serin from 2014 to 2019, the one right before Bukele. He was convicted of stealing $150 million with at least 20 extended family members on the payroll who never worked a single day while he was in office. He's also a fugitive living in Nicaragua right now. Meanwhile, the U.S. media tells us it's Bukele that's shredding democracy in El Salvador. It's laughable, he says, how they point to previous administrations and claim those were the days when El Salvador had a viable working democracy. Yes, he says, that's why 20 years ago I escaped El Salvador, because it was so safe, prosperous, and happy. Juanito says, if democracy and extreme crime rates go hand in hand, as U.S. journalists seem to think, then before Bukele, El Salvador was the most democratic country in the world. Signed. Juanito Sanchez Saba, the human boomerang. <laughs> I get it, Juanito. Boomerang, right? You went from Salvador back to the States, back to El Salvador again. 
You've been listening to The Expat Files, living in Latin America. If you need some help with your own Plan B, we can schedule a one-on-one phone or Skype consult. Just send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the waiting list for my next week-long expat insider seminar in Central America, where you're guaranteed to get a two- to five-year head start on your Plan B, send me an email, theexpatfiles at gmail.com. Nos vemos.